The case for change and the case for urgency are non-negotiable. Quote, sooner or later, no matter how hard they push, Cotter writes, no matter how much they threaten, if they're the leaders, if many others don't feel the same sense of urgency, the momentum for change will probably die far short of the finish line. This is Hans Finzel. Welcome to the Leadership Answer Man. This is a show for leaders about taking your leadership skills to the next level. Whether you are a seasoned leader or just starting out, I promise to give you practical leadership tips that you can use this week. No matter what your leadership situation is, I can help. Remember, leaders make things happen. My passion is to help you lead more effectively. Welcome to the podcast today. I'm going to start a series on change management and change leadership. I've uh, talked about it before in other podcasts, but I just keep running into it all the time. I'm amazed at how many leaders have to deal with change, whether you're in leadership or management. I always say you have to be an expert in leading people on change. And I find I love the topic of change when I'm in charge of it. But man, when it's inflicted upon me, oh, that drives me nuts. Great examples when your phone software gets updated or you get an app that you're so familiar with and all of a sudden it's completely changed. And they don't ask you, they just inflict it upon you. And sometimes, you know, I'm all into technology and I'm into change and I'm very innovative, but still... We love change when we're in charge of it. But as the the great book, uh, Who Moved My Cheese, Spencer Johnson said, a change imposed is a change opposed. I had a board member years ago on in my organization say uh, said, if I'm not in on it, I'm down on it. So I'm going to do a series of podcasts on how to bring about change effectively. And today we're going to talk about creating urgency for change. All of these podcasts are standalones, but uh, it will be a series of uh, several podcasts on the human nature in launching new initiatives in major change. You know, people don't like change, but on the opposite side, playing it safe is risky. A cool little book I ran into a few years ago is called, <laughs> great little title, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day by Mark Batterson. Here's something he says in the book. 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than by the things you did do. So throw off the bowlines, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore, dream, discover. I like that. That's a great quote from In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. And, uh, you know, I hope as you get older, you don't have a condition that a lot of people have. I call it the hardening of the categories. <laughs> you know, we just need to stay lean, flexible, pliable, and uh, and open to change. Here's something else from that book. Uh, this is actually from Warren Bennis and Robert Thomas. There's a book that they wrote called Geeks and Geezers. I've never read the book, but here's a great little story that they talk about in that book. Uh, and uh, they talk about a new word that I'd never heard before. It's called neoteny, N-E-O-T-E-N-Y. It derives from the Greek word neos, which means new, fresh, or youthful. And neoteny is the retention of youthful qualities by adults. I guess that's the point of the books, Geeks and Geezers. And that would be my plea for all of us. It's certainly my passion to never stop learning, to never stop growing, and to always be youthful inside. You know, I look at myself in the mirror sometimes and I say, what happened to me? 
I don't feel on the inside what I look like on the outside. And if you're young, I guarantee this will happen to you someday if you live long enough. Uh, I love to stay youthful on the inside. Have you ever thought about how old you feel on the inside? Hmm, I'm thinking I feel about 35, even though I'm quite a bit older than that. Uh, You know, and then some people say, well, how old will we be in heaven? Right now, this movie, Heaven is for Real, is going around based on the book, a great little book about this boy who did go to heaven. And and, uh, one of the great stories in that book is about meeting his grandfather. And when he went back and talked to his parents about his grandfather and they showed him pictures, he said, nah, that wasn't him. And eventually one day he happened to see a picture of this man who was in his 40s, I believe. And he said, that's the man I, I met. That's grandpa. And I thought, well, how cool is that? How old would we be in heaven? I don't know. But we should always have this quality of the retention of youthful quality. So here's what Bennis and Thomas talk about. Neoteny is more than retaining a youthful appearance, although that is often part of it. Neoteny is the retention of those wonderful qualities that we associate with youth. Curiosity, playfulness, eagerness, fearlessness, warmth, and energy. Unlike those defeated by time and age, our geezers have remained much like our geeks. Open, willing to take risks, hungry for knowledge and experience, courageous, eager to see what the new day brings. Do you know any people that are what you would call old or elderly, and yet they seem that way in spirit? One of the guys that I used to work for, his name is Arno, A-R-N-O. He's uh, living here in Colorado. He's well into his retirement years, into his 80s. So he's been retired for well over 20 years. And uh, he sends me articles from time to time. And we get together for lunch from time to time. And I just love the fact that he has the spirit of neoteny. He is still thinking progressively and fresh well into his mid-80s. And I just love that. Let's talk about creating a sense of urgency for change. It really is the first critical step in the journey of change. Do whatever is necessary to promote discomfort among people long enough to get things moving in a new direction. If, you know, to me, leadership and change is all about moving people from point A to point B. And they're never going to move to point B if they're totally comfortable and cozy in point A. So the first part of change is creating discomfort and eventually creating a guiding coalition of the dissatisfied that must lead the way to the future. I was talking to a leader the other day, and he was telling me a very discouraging story about trying to bring about some change in, in the organization. And uh, it, it utterly failed. And I, and I prodded and, and I pried and I, I kind of tried to ask some questions about what was behind the story. And you know what I learned pretty quickly is he was in it all by himself. He did not have any allies. He had not uh, created a guiding coalition. So it failed because without a critical mass of people, it doesn't have to be the majority by any chance, but it has to be a a strong group that says we're going to take this hill no matter what. That's what you call what I call a guiding coalition. Let me talk about jumping the gun. I've done it. I bet you have too. Tried to fix something before the support for the fix was in place. You move an office, you redo the stationery, you adopt the new logo, you make a major purchase, you upgrade the computers, maybe it's a home improvement, you name it. You think it needs some tweaking, so you undertake the changes impulsively, half-cocked. You decide to do it yourself, and then something doesn't turn out quite right. 
So now comes the scorn. Why did you mess with it? It was fine. Maybe your spouse said this to you. Maybe a coworker. Maybe your boss. Maybe the people you supervise. It wasn't broke. Why are you fixing it? And of course, the classic of all, it ain't broke. Don't fix it. Here's where I learned one of my most painful lessons on change. If you roll out and announce big changes before you've created your case for change, it's like scratching people where they don't itch. Selling people things they don't want to buy. Fixing things people are convinced are not broken. So let me state what I call the definition of a case for change. And a lot of this stuff I, I learned through the years from John Cotter, who teaches at Harvard University, who is like, man, he is the guru on change. But a case for change is the rationale that you articulate to explain why things are broken, how things are not working right, and the urgency of the risks if solutions are not addressed. It's the first homework of any change agent. And if you have an enormous change project ahead of you, like you're going to buy a new computer system, you're going to move to a new office, you're going to recarpet the place, you're going to uh, relocate like I did to another state where we moved the entire operation, or a name change, you got to write a long, extensive case for change. If it's a small thing, like we're going to paint the building, uh, you may not need to write the case for change, and it may not be very big. But, you know, I'm surprised, especially in churches, how many people can get upset about remodels and repainting and new carpet. So the first work of any change agent is to create a case for change, why things need to change, why things are broken. And this case for change creates some discomfort. John Cotter, in his book, What Leaders Really Do, claims that most executives rarely push the urgency factor hard enough. And then in his classic, the book Leading Change, which I highly recommend, he argues that creating a case for change and its urgency are the first essential steps in the change cycle. He says, quote, with complacency, High transformations usually go nowhere because few people are interested in working on the change program. End of quote, he writes. The case for change and the case for urgency are non-negotiable. Quote, sooner or later, no matter how hard they push, Cotter writes, no matter how much they threaten, if they're the leaders, if many others don't feel the same sense of urgency, the momentum for change will probably die far short of the finish line. In his book, one reason I love Cotter, uh, and this may not be of much comfort to you, but he says, most change efforts fail. And he outlines in his books uh, the eight reasons why change efforts fail. And I'll be sprinkling some of this stuff throughout these podcasts and uh, in his subsequently the eight keys to a successful change plan. And obviously one of them is this creating a case for change. My father, with his rich German accent, always used to tell me, son, we get too soon old and we get too late smart. <laughs> he was so right. We get too soon old and too late smart. You would think I'd learned a few things about implementing change during my years in leadership as a CEO, but in my passion for change, I'm still not smart enough to avoid some of the common mistakes of putting ideas into practice. You know, I am somewhat impulsive and I am a visionary and uh, I get so excited about things and sometimes I go off half cocked uh, and I've had some situations totally blow up in my face and, and just have an outcry of opposition against a brilliant idea. And I think to myself, how could anybody not realize how great this idea is? 
Well, you know, because we haven't taken the time to bring them along. And what we think is broke, oh my goodness, is not at all necessarily what other people think is broke. People resist change for all kinds of reasons. And I'm going to talk about uh, in just a moment about what I call why people resist change announcements and, and what I call the four factors of doubt. Four factors of doubt. Number one, we did not know there was a problem. This is the it ain't broke syndrome. One of the big change programs that I led our people through was to relocate our entire international office from the Chicago area to the Denver area. And I remember when we announced the move, there was such an outcry by many of the rank and file people. You know, we our organizations were scattered all over the world and people would come back to the home office periodically to the Chicago area. Have you ever noticed how much people fall in love with buildings? I've seen this oh in businesses and family businesses and people's homes and in churches. And you you can get a church that, you know, I hate walking into a church and I feel like I'm walking into the 1950s or 60s. It even smells like it. But people that have been there for a long time, they love it and they get attached to it. So the first factor of doubt when you announce a big change is we did not know there was a problem. Number two, we're in shock about your solution to a non-problem. Don't fix it. We don't want you to relocate the organization to Colorado. I say to myself, well, have you ever been to Colorado? Well, yeah, I've gone there on vacation. It's a beautiful place. Well, wouldn't you like to live there? Well, that's beside the point. We're in shock that you would waste the money to relocate the operation. And our building is perfectly fine. Well, it was not perfectly fine. We had uh, over $500,000 of needed repairs in an old building that was built in 1958 that was falling apart at the seams. We had to build a brand new building somewhere. And me and the leadership team just decided, well, and the board, why don't we just build it in Colorado instead of Chicago? The cost of living is cheaper there. Uh, Here where I am now, by the way, we did pull it off successfully and and all that happened 15 years ago but um at that time there was it was an outcry the third factor of doubt we had no idea any change was coming this is what i call the ambush factor we felt ambushed and you know i always tell leaders don't be a cuckoo clock leader where the little do- we have these german cuckoo clocks in our house and uh, one of them is broken it's been broken for a long time my little grandson was here the other day for uh, lunch and he was looking up at the cuckoo clock and he said papa would you show me the little birdie and so i had to manually open the little door and the little birdie comes out and it has these little dancing austrian uh people that go around when have you ever tried to fix a cuckoo clock it's very expensive but i've decided i gotta get it fixed for my uh, grandson and my grandkids because they just want to see it go but a cuckoo clock leader the door opens he steps out or she steps out and they say it has been decided fill in the blank or the pastor gets up in the pulpit on Sunday morning. So it's been decided that we're changing the times of our worship service, or it's been decided we're recarpeting, or it's been decided we're buying this new asset, or the business leader says it's been decided we're going into a whole new line of work, or we're trying a whole new approach to marketing, or we're completely redesigning our website, you name it. When 
sometimes people feel ambushed when you just announce it. Now, some decisions eventually have to be announced. Some decisions are very big and they have to be done behind closed doors. I would say a couple of examples are staff reorganizations. I remember one time I had to reorganize my leadership team because I had too many people reporting to me. My board insisted, Hans, you have to reduce your span of control. So I did do that, but it was something I kind of had to work on myself and the board privately. The relocation of our international headquarters to Colorado is something we had to sort of do privately because so many jobs were at stake, so many families were going to be um, interrupted, children in school were going to have to move. We did not want to announce it until we knew it was going to happen. So sometimes you have to make an announcement and you just have to take the heat. As an aside, in that case, as we've done, prepare FAQs. I'll talk about that in a future broadcast, but FAQs are frequently asked questions, and it's so helpful for the leadership team to prepare the FAQs ahead of time uh, so you can anticipate. You know, we, we used to sit around my, my table and we would brainstorm, all right, what are all the questions people are going to ask us and what are we going to answer them? It's a great exercise. Number four, Let me just review. Number one, we didn't know there was a problem. Number two, we were in shock about your solution to a non-problem. Number three, we had no idea any change was coming. We felt ambushed. And number four, this is really important, we offered no input for the solutions imposed on us. We might have had really good input for you to consider a better solution. And, you know, that's true. And in my journey of change through the years, I finally realized that whenever possible, it would be good to have an open process of change, not a closed process. And if you let people know, hey, you know, we feel there's a problem here and we'd like to tell you why we think there's a problem and We'd like your input about possible solutions, and I believe without a doubt that a team working together on solutions come up with much better ideas. That's what a team is. Together, everyone accomplishes more. So whenever possible, try to have an open process of change. This brings me to a cardinal rule of managing change. Forget about the obvious benefits when planning your strategy. Assume that everyone but you will absolutely hate your plan, at least initially. That's my cardinal rule for managing change. Let's talk about liberating the elephants. In his book, Teaching the Elephant to Dance, James Belasco uses the analogy of liberating the elephants. Trainers shackle young elephants with heavy chains to deeply embedded stakes in the ground. In that way, the elephant learns to stay in its place. Older, powerful elephants never try to leave, even though they have now got the strength to pull the stake right out of the ground and move beyond. Their conditioning limits their movement with only a small metal bracket around their foot attached to nothing. The stakes are actually gone, but the elephants will not move. Like powerful elephants, many companies are bound by earlier conditional restraints. And I'll hasten to say, so are ministries and so are churches. We get constrained by the past. We have always done things that way, is the limiting to any organization's progress as the unattached chain around the elephant's foot. 
This goes back to the concept of staying youthful and staying progressive and how many, not only people, but organizations and ministries and churches grow old in their mindset. We've always done things that way. We've never done things that way. And what I call my 11 commandments of organizational paralysis that I've shared from time to time. When the circus tent catches on fire, the elephant sees the flames with its own eyes and smells the smoke with its own nostrils. It forgets its old conditioning and it changes. It physically escapes the fiery death. Well, here's your task as a change agent. Set things on fire, or at least to point it out to people so your people can see the flames with their own eyes and smell the smoke with their own nostrils without burning the tent down. And anyone can set the fire at any level of the organization. That's Teaching the Elephant to Dance by James Belasco. Great, great example. When I talk to my organization about selling our building and moving to Colorado and building a new building. It wasn't to build a monument to myself. It wasn't to waste money. Our building was falling apart. It was not possible to retrofit it technologically. We were suffering because of our building. And if you have a building that works against you, you know what I'm talking about. And if you have a facility that works in your favor, it makes you so much more successful. And I had to literally set a fire under people to help them understand why we needed to do this. The pioneers and mavericks you enlist to help you in your change process are obviously going to be risk takers. You as a leader are a purveyor of hope as you paint a picture of the future that others can believe in. But you must paint the picture or start the fire, as the case may be. And then you must ensure that others in your organization find it as compelling as you do. That's building that guiding coalition. What's the point? A sense of urgency is the critical first step in the journey of change. If there's no case for change and no sense of urgency built into the system, then you have to begin and do some homework. People are not going to move from point A to point B without that sense of urgency and some discomfort about A. Go back to the beginning and do what is necessary to promote discomfort among enough people to get things moving in the new direction. Now, let me give you a few takeaways to take home with you today. And uh, just a reminder, I'd love to have you tweet about this podcast if you like it and go to iTunes and give me a good rating. Uh, you know, why should you bother? Why should you care? Little OU? Well, no, it's very important because it helps promote the podcast and get the word out. And it's like Google search. It helps me get more people listening to the podcast. And, you know, you get to listen to it for free and I give it out for free, but I just love to spread my teaching around. People say, Hans, why? Why do you love podcasting so much? Because to me, it's uh, it's teaching, and I love teaching, and I love teaching about leadership because I love leaders because leaders make things happen and they change the world. Okay, some takeaways. Change is the river that must be traversed between the land of opportunity and the land of pending disaster. Just a couple of takeaways. At this stage, there's a fine line between being a negative complaining whiner and someone who sees both the opportunities and the pending disaster if things do not change. If one is not careful, they can begin sounding like the boy who cried wolf, someone who others dismiss. Number two, clearly define the opportunity or problem as you see it from the perspective of those over you and those under you. And most of us have people under us and people over us. For that group most affected by your proposed change, make sure you're considering the issues from their perspective. 
sit down and talk with them and and just openly discuss hey you know i'm thinking we need a change but you're the one you know on the front lines i just recently talked to a mortgage broker and he was just crying about all the new regulations that the government has put into the mortgage industry because of the mortgage crisis of 2008. We'd always, we'll all agree that there were way too many mortgages get, being given out to people that shouldn't have had loans, but now my broker friend was saying, you know, they have tripled our work and we don't make any more money and we are dying under the paperwork. And I just wish some of those government bureaucrats that make these rules would sit in our office one day and feel the results of what they have legislated to us. You know, that's going down and talking to the people on the front line. Is it a real problem? Is it an alignment issue? Is it a keeping relevant need? Is it a matter of customers deserting us for the competition if we don't make any changes? Is it because we're losing money? We're losing market share? We're losing members? You know, people are just not coming. People are going elsewhere. Uh, Or is it just something you want to do for the sake of change? Number three, discuss with those potentially affected by this opportunity or problem as you see it and as you define it. Do they agree with you? Do they see problems that you haven't taken into consideration? Number four, recruit and enlist these people as partners in the coming change process. What ideas and solutions can they bring to the table? Can they help you implement the mutually desired change? I learned in my journey that when I saw somebody converted from opposition to an ally, they were my greatest champions for change. A converted opponent, once they become a fan of the change, can take you so far at convincing others. Finally, number five, communicate over-communicate with the organization, the opportunity and problem and the pending change process and, and ways of communicating back and forth and giving you feedback to be involved in the process. The more open the communication can be, the better. Remember, the first step of any change agent is to create an urgency for change. This has been Hans Finzel. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Answer Man. Remember that leaders make great things happen. We can always take our leadership to the next level. I hope you keep listening and learning and that you go out there this week and make a difference with your leadership.